First, though, you've likely heard this in the news. People who are ignoring pleas, not laws, but pleas and recommendations not to travel between provinces or territories in this country. Premier John Horgan earlier today said that his government is going to ask for legal advice to see if it can stop non-essential travel. And he says that is going to be happening soon, that seeking out of the advice. So on the surface, it would seem uh, an easy thing to do to just tell people not to come here. Is it an easy thing to do? Well, we thought it would be a good thing to get a legal opinion on now. And Sarah Lehman joins me, a lawyer and the founder of the Sarah Lehman Law Group. Thank you so much for making some time for us. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, We've talked to you before about some of the rules that have come into place uh, under the pandemic, uh, where uh, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms comes into play. We've also seen the Atlantic bubble and challenges of that. What are your what's your first reaction to hearing the premier saying he's going to get legal advice to see if he can stop or the province can stop non-essential travel into B.C.? Well, I think that it's very wise for the government to be seeking legal advice prior to taking any real action on this. But, you know, my second secondary reaction to this is why didn't it happen sooner? Why are we waiting this long to finally uh, get that legal advice and decide what, if any, measures should be implemented in order to protect British Columbians? It, uh, I, that was actually my first response, too, thinking, uh, great, why didn't you do this months ago? <laughs> and uh, look at what, what's being done in some other countries that are having much better uh, results when dealing with this virus. Uh, But do you think, though, even getting this legal advice, uh, looking at what happened in Atlantic Canada, that did go to the courts. Can we learn from that? Yes. So Newfoundland and Labrador actually had a very effective response, if you look at it in terms of transmission rates um, when it comes to COVID-19, by instituting that very strict bubble um, and preventing people from out of province from traveling into Newfoundland. Um, And so that has actually been challenged. Uh, As far as I know, the challenge is still before the courts. Uh, I don't think any decision has been made just yet. But the complainant there is a woman uh, who was stopped at the border when she was trying to go back to attend a close family member's funeral and denied entry. Um, So she is challenging that travel restriction under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which does guarantee mobility rights for Canadians within this country. And so uh, this will certainly set a precedent uh, moving forward about how these travel bans uh, should be treated and whether or not they can be implemented in the first place. Uh, Is it possible then the legal advice that the Premier gets is wait and see what happens with the Atlantic bubble case? (laughs) <laughs> it very well could be. I think that certainly it will be that in part, um, but the opinion will have to consider not only constitutional rights and freedoms and mobility rights of Canadian citizens, but it will also have to consider limitations on those. And as I've mentioned many times in the past, uh, you know, our civil liberties are not absolute. They can be limited, and in fact, the Charter does contemplate mechanisms under which they may be properly limited. So uh, I think a very thorough legal opinion will have to contemplate that as well. Well, and that's kind of what uh, part of the ruling from the, the summertime when we were looking at that Atlantic bubble case, the justice hearing that case said that uh, the travel ban violates Section 6 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms that allows Canadians to move freely throughout the country, but mm-hmm. saying that the ban is also protect, protect, protected uh, by mm-hmm. Section 1, which allows reasonable ex- exemptions to the Charter. So I guess the big question is reasonable. What is defined as reasonable? Oh, I think we may have lost Sarah. Sarah, are you still there? 
All right, we're going to try and get Sarah back on the line. Oh, <laughs> we'll try and get her back on the line. We seem to be having some technical uh, problems there. Wanted to let you know as well that we are going to open up the phone lines on this topic. What are your thoughts uh, with the hearing earlier today? I guess uh, better late than never is the phrase that comes to mind. Premier John Horgan saying that his government is going to be seeking legal advice to see if it can stop non-essential travel into the province. Why on earth you weren't doing that months ago while we were seeing this unfold in Atlantic Canada? If for no other reason reason than to have the information. I mean, here we are, January 14th, and now you decide to seek legal advice? Okay, we have reconnected with Sarah. Sarah, I don't know if you heard my question. I'm just curious. Uh, when we talk about Section 1 of the Charter, which allows reasonable exemptions to the Charter, does it come down then to the interpretation and how we define reasonable? Yes, exactly. So, um there are all kinds of laws that violate our charter rights, um, and we experience those on almost a daily basis. There's limitations on our rights and freedoms because, of course, if they were absolute, society would be almost unlivable uh, for us. And so what the courts have to consider is whether or not the right or freedom that has been infringed upon has been infringed upon reasonably. Um, so it has to be justified in a free and democratic society, which means that not only does it need to be prescribed by law, but it also needs to be something that tips in the balance of public interest and is a very um, unintrusive uh, limitation as well. So uh, there's a whole legal test that was developed by the Supreme Court of Canada for when we consider this. Uh, it's certainly not an easy one, uh, but it is one that the courts do contemplate regularly, and I'm sure they will in the context of this issue as well. Does it come down to even how to implement it, though? And it seems like it would probably be a little easier for the Atlantic provinces to do the Atlantic bubble. But here we have a BC with a very large border uh, with Alberta. Uh, we haven't stopped flights. Flights are coming and going, although people from out of the country are supposed to be quarantining. That's the law now. Uh, is it something that could be done in that maybe you can't stop non-essential travel, but you could bring in interprovincial quarantines? Sure. I mean, that might be one reasonable limitation on mobility rights. Um, and perhaps that's something that will be contemplated by the government. Uh, I do think that there are measures that could be adopted that are perhaps not quite as onerous as just banning uh, interprovincial travel altogether. And of course, there are those logistical concerns where you share a border with another province. Um, but again, I think this is going to have to come down to uh, how we're going to best protect our communities while also balancing those individual rights and liberties. All right, Sarah, always good to have you on the program and to get your legal opinion on things. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, if you've ever read a court judgment, you may have gotten stuck on some of the language. That's nothing new. If you've ever been in a courtroom, you've likely heard the terms, my lord and my lady. Well, depending on what level of court you were attending. A lawyer based in Kamloops is now trying to modernize some of the archaic language that we see in BC courtrooms. And joining me to talk more about this is Jay Mitchie, a partner at Jensen Law. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill. So how did this all start, trying to change the language? Well, uh, what, what happened was, uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but, or if your listeners are aware of this, but at the end of, uh, at the, end of the year, our courts, our provincial court and the superior courts, uh, that is the Supreme Court of British Columbia and our Court of Appeal, issued tandem practice directions. Uh, directing counsel to introduce uh, our preferred pronouns and the preferred pronouns of our 
of our clients at the introduction of every uh, hearing. Um, now, going back a year and a half ago, I, I attended a trans competency lawyering seminar, seminar or workshop that was put on um, up at uh, Thompson Rivers University here in Kamloops. And uh, it, was, it was presented by uh, two lawyers who are uh, either trans or non-binary and who um, they, they were the ones who said to me, uh, or said to the group, that this was something that, that bothered them, um, that ultimately it's only a matter of time before we have a justice of the B.C. Supreme Court or the Court of Appeal who doesn't identify as my lord or my lady, so that language isn't inclusive. Uh, and that was a novel idea. I hadn't, to, to me, prior to that, I always just said my lord and my lady, and I'm someone who uh, generally embraces legal traditions, and I like wearing my robes, I like wearing my tabs, uh, I like calling other lawyers my friends. Um, so those are things I think that are valid. But what doesn't make any sense now, um, in light of the practice directions that were uh, that I support, that we are to identify our pronouns, uh, that to then turn around and make an assumption about the sex or, or gender identity of the judge who's presiding in front of me, uh, it just doesn't make sense. And separate from that, um, there, there's an access to justice issue that, that many people are catching as this conversation develops, which is that it's confusing for people who come to court. As you mentioned in your introduction, it, when people come to court, most people expect to hear a judge being referred to as your honor, because that's what we see on in the in the movies and TV. Mm-hmm. And that's how we address our provincial court judges. And so uh, why wouldn't it be the same in every court, every level of court? And what kind of a response have you had to this so far? Well, I, this started as a conversation on Twitter. I'm on Twitter and I, I'm a, a Twitter lawyer, I guess. Uh, I'm a, Twitter, a real lawyer as well. But I, uh, it started on Twitter and then someone made a helpful suggestion that you know, I should just tell the chief justices what my view on this was. Obviously, it resonated with them. And then uh, I said, well, how do, you, how do you get a hold of the chief justices? That's not something I do every day. And apparently they had, I got their email addresses, and I just sent them a, a, a letter basically telling them what I, what I just told you and your listeners. And uh, I was surprised. I got a response back very quickly. Within a week, um, you know, I know the courts are very busy, particularly now. Uh, there's a tremendous backlog. So I was very impressed by how uh, quick I got a response from the chief justices. But, I, but it was sort of a... Thanks for raising your point of view. Uh, it's something we're aware of. It's something we've discussed over the years. Um, but it was a bit of a cliffhanger ending. I don't. It didn't seem like it was going to go anywhere. And then so I started having the conversation again online, and uh, I got picked up. Uh, one of uh, former t- former Attorney General Jeff Plant um, lended his voice to the cause, and then uh, my uh, friend Tim, Tim Petruck from Castanet News and Kamloops contacted me and wrote a story and. Now it's uh, it's catching on. And now here we are. Uh, you mentioned the, the robes as well, because the, when you're in a courtroom, it, it is almost in some senses like traveling back in time or, or perhaps a place where in some aspects time has stood still. What is the, the meaning or, or is the robes to kind of make everybody equal or what is the point of having uh, people in robes? That's a really good question, and lawyers uh, disagree on this, and some of, it, some of it's lost in, in the midst of time, but um, it, we've worn robes for hundreds of years uh, in superior courts. Of course, if you go into a provincial courtroom, you'll just see lawyers wearing suits, uh, but at the higher levels of court, we wear our robes. And um, for me, it, uh, it is an equalizer, and it's also, um, I, I'm a criminal lawyer. I defend uh, cases, and it's often um, very, very difficult subject matter in those cases. And when I wear my robes, it reminds me that um, I am holding 
uh, I am an officer of the court, and I'm there uh, because it's my calling, and uh, and it's not I'm not necessarily associated with the with the crime that my client is uh, alleged to have caused uh, committed. So um, that's what the robes mean to me, and uh, I know there there are other lawyers who will say the robes have to go as well. That's not where I'm going with this. Uh, and like I said, uh, somebody else pointed out, well, why do lawyers say my friend? And mm-hmm. the reason we do is because. We, we get into a uh, very vigorous debate sometimes in court, but just because you're uh, debating with your friend doesn't mean that they're not your friend. And uh, we are, we're very lucky. I think most lawyers uh, who are listening to this will say, I uh, would, would agree with me that we're very lucky that the level of collegiality we have in, um, in the bar, particularly in the criminal bar in this province. And I would completely agree with that and having uh, several years of covering courts. In fact, it's the one thing I really miss, not being out on the beat, being a beat reporter and being able to be part of that and, and, and witness that, uh, that that friendship and the level of respect, unless it's a really good acting uh, case uh, from all the lawyers, it does uh, seem right. like it, it's very present in, in even very contentious and horrific crimes or horrific cases in some in some uh, scenarios. Yes. Yeah, and uh, and that's another point I, I tried to uh, that I tried to convey uh, when I sent my letter to the to the chief, and I um, and that I keep saying as I'm having this conversation is that uh, we all have different uh, views on traditions and styles, and um, some of us might like the robes, and some of us might hate the robes and think that they're symbols of colonialism, and that there's a bunch of arguments for and against all of this. But what it comes back to for me is that ultimately our justice system is not there to prop up lawyers and judges' individual or collective senses of style and tradition. It is there, of course, to serve the public. And that's the question. How is addressing the courts, my lord and my lady, in the 21st century serving the public any better? And I don't think there's a good answer for that. So would it also change other, uh, and going from, from covering courts and writing stories, uh, we also refer to Madam Justice, uh, insert name here, Mr. Justice, insert name here. Would, would the Madam and the Mr. be dropped as well? No, I don't think that has to go uh, necessarily. And maybe, and maybe with the responses that judges just simply at the commencement of proceedings say, this is how uh, I identify, this is how I'd like to be addressed. Uh, I'm sure, I suspect that... Um, a number of the justices, some of them are probably listening to this, uh, would agree with me that it's time to jettison this uh, terminology. I don't necessarily like saying my lady. Uh, my, I'm, and I've talked to some um, female friends who are lawyers who, who don't like saying my lord to people they don't know. I mean, this, is just, this is awkward, even for lawyers. And so, and so, Jeff Plant has noticed this. So obviously, it's getting uh, some uh, traction, and people are paying attention. Uh, you've written the letter. I, I guess do you wait and see what other kind of response you get, and and move forward in that sense? I guess so. I'm <laughs> I'm glad the conversation is happening, and uh, that people are interested in it right now. I, I see another comment that's come up. Is this really the biggest fish to fry? Uh, maybe not. Obviously, we have lots of uh, we have lots of fish to fry right now, but. Uh, you know, that's also coming from, those are comments coming from people who probably never thought of this issue before, just like me. Before a year and a half ago, I never thought about how this affects people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but people coming before the courts, uh, trans trans people and uh, non-binary individuals, they, they we know that they are disproportionately coming before the courts. And so why can't we offer this little kindness uh, to them? Uh, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a little fish to fry, it's an easy one. 
All right. Well, I agree with you. And I think that it's going to get to even more uh, attention as we move forward. We'll leave it there for today. Jay, thanks so much for joining us and, and talking more about this. Jill, thank you. Well, a lot of people are curious about vaccine distribution in this province, right across the country, really, whether you have loved ones in other provinces, uh, for a number of reasons. And the BC Centre for Disease Control website does update the vaccine distribution plan here, although it hasn't been updated for uh, about a week. Uh, Some doctors are now calling for greater transparency on the national vaccine rollout. And joining me on the line is Dr. Alan Drummond, co-chair of the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians Public Affairs Committee. Thank you so much for making some time for us. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, when you talk about the need for greater transparency, where do you think we're lacking in transparency on vaccine rollout? Well, I think we're not... Uh, there's certainly been a lack of direct communication and clarity with respect to uh, which groups are being actually prioritized and on what basis. Um, Across the country, uh, you know, we have seen uh, administrators, uh, hospital administrators, uh, public relations people uh, being vaccinated uh, all the while, while uh, emergency physicians and emergency nurses, you know, are on the front lines seeing COVID patients and yet not afforded the same protection. Courtesy of social media, you know, we've also been aware across the country of, of Physicians who are, you know, everybody deserves a vaccination, let's be very clear, but, but physicians who are on the second or third lines of health care, such as radiologists, psychiatrists, uh, rehabilitation specialists, doctors who are doing meetings by Zoom, uh, who by virtue of their association with a university or a hospital are getting vaccinated, while in the periphery, uh, in the rural communities and smaller suburban communities, emergency physicians continue to see COVID patients without any understanding uh, or clarity as to when they could expect COVID vaccination. And that, frankly, is uh, unacceptable, and it's actually probably unethical. So do you think that the problem is then with the actual putting together of a plan for who is prioritized and who gets the vaccine first? Yeah, I mean, I don't think, I think all emergency physicians, uh, like we were enjoined in the first wave of this of this fight uh, during the first wave of COVID with inadequate, you know, personal protective equipment without, in, you know, inadequate medical direction, lack of ventilators, lack of negative pressure rooms to contain uh, infectious patients. And nobody complained. Everybody sort of did their work and got about doing the business of protecting Canadians. But here we are in the second wave. So we, you know, the first wave, we sort of tackled it uh, with one hand behind our backs, kind of, Lee. And, and here we are in the second wave with vaccinations rolling out, but you know, we're seen to be a bit of an afterthought. And, you know, quite frankly, many, you know, one of the weak points of the emergency health care system is our health human resources or is an insufficient number of emergency physicians or is an insufficient number of emergency nurses. Uh, and particularly in smaller communities, if somebody gets sick or gets quarantined, an entire service uh, can be left under threat. So the problem has been, you know, a patient doesn't arrive in, a, in an IC unit, IC unit in COVID without first seeing a paramedic, without first being seen by an emergency nurse, without first being seen by an emergency physician. And all we're asking for is uh, the amount of re- some degree of respect via adequate communication for those of us that have uh, committed ourselves to this cause, this great national endeavor, uh, by at least advising us uh, as to, you know, and providing some clarity as to when we might expect vaccination. Nobody's looking to jump the queue. 
Uh, everybody understands there are vulnerable Canadians and vulnerable communities that are more deserving. But this has been, it's been quite disrespectful and demoralizing, frankly, uh, to not be included in the discussions as to when it, you know, we might see emergency service providers being vaccinated. And I think there probably was an assumption or at least a thought by by most people that people on the front lines, the very groups you just described, would automatically have been at the front of the line. And of course, it makes sense that anybody who is a first responder who is in that that, that first contact with somebody who might have uh, the virus would be first up to get the vaccine. Well, that's true. And uh, so how this has happened is really kind of beyond me. I mean, it's, a, it's been a discouraging time. I mean, we've been fighting this for 10 months now. And, and I think Canadian emergency physicians and uh, emergency nurses and paramedics have really risen to the challenge. It has been our, it has been our shining hour as we strive to protect uh, Canadians. Uh, and it's been quite demoralizing to see public health officials, politicians, uh, telling us to, you know, exhorting us to continue the good fight while they take off to Margaritaville or Hawaii. Uh, it's been, you know, demoralizing to see our political leaders fighting amongst one another as to whether there's a distribution issue or a vaccine supply problem. Like, we should all be in this together. Uh, and so on top of this, this, this attitude uh, to be uh, left out of, of, the, of the vaccination process early on is one further message that we are not actually healthcare heroes. We're more like cannon fodder. Do you think, too, that there's been a, a bit of a gap, or perhaps there's a better word for that, in the distribution process, in that we've known all along that this was going to be part of the solution, that at some point there was going to be vaccine, and that's what we were going to be doing to fight this. We knew from the beginning. What we didn't know then was when it was going to happen. And it seems like we've almost been caught off guard. In There's talk of, well, why aren't pharmacists helping, uh, being called in to, to vaccinate? Why, aren't, why don't we have a better system in place ready to start immediately to get the vaccinations out there. Well, that's entirely the correct statement. I mean, there, I think, you know, what happened in the first wave, we all sort of, you know, braced ourselves, tried to prevent a situation like New York City or Northern Italy. There was a lot of innovation. There was a lot of uh, modification of the way we do business and uh, practice medicine. And, I, you know, I think we rose to the challenge quite well. And we never did see uh, what happened in Northern Italy. We, had, we would never were overwhelmed. Uh, and then I think complacency sat in, uh, settled in and, you know, people just thought, well, maybe this isn't going to be as bad. But we all knew there would be a second wave. And previous modeling experiments have sort of shown that not only would we get a second wave by the fall, but that it may well be worse. And, you know, sure enough, here we are. And uh, the numbers are skyrocketing. Hospital admissions are, you know, in, on, on the rise. Deaths are on the rise. ICU admissions are on the rise. There is really no excuse. None. Uh, for having allowed this to happen. And in my own community, like everybody, every Canadian has known that we'd probably get a vaccine by late December, early January. It it wasn't a surprise. And in my own community, the public health unit, which is responsible for this distribution, just last week decided they were going to start thinking about how to distribute the vaccine when it arrived. They've had months and months and months, but they just started, you know, last week. Which which seems hard to believe, given exactly what you said, what we've known all along. And yes, a lot of it was was learn as we go, but not that part as far as making sure we were ready to start distributing. Do you think things might change at all as we start getting more doses and more access to vaccine supply? Oh, absolutely. I mean, people will ramp up, but will not, what will not be forgiven 
uh, is the fact that, sure, eventually emergency physicians, emergency nurses, and paramedics will be vaccinated, but will not, will not be forgotten or forgiven, uh, is that you allowed us to uh, work in an unsafe environment, vulnerable to the patients we were, we were seeing for so long and without much of a forethought. That, it really is uh, actually probably unforgivable, and it was cer- most certainly demoralizing for all of us. Uh, what do you do from this point on then? Because like you said, so many people in that position are now working still in those conditions as we deal uh, with the second wave and now wait and try and find out when the vaccine is coming. Well, what choice do we have? Uh, you know, this is, our, this is our vocation. This is what we do. You know, we signed up to look after people, to look after communities, to keep Canadians safe. So, you know, it, it, that, that's just the reality of our job and the reality of our vocation and the reality of our profession. And, you know, even though there's a lot of anger developing uh, in the sort of lower tiers of, of, of the medical social structure, i.e. us, uh, nobody's going to, you know, shirk their responsibilities. We're still going to go in there. We're still going to put on the masks and the shields and the gowns and the gloves and still continue to do our very best to look after people. But, again, it's, it, you know, this is at a time when we're all at a bit of a low ebb. We're all getting a bit war-weary. Uh, and this is really kind of uh, rubbing salt in our wound a little bit. And I think that's true of, of physicians and nurses and paramedics and both on the West Coast, the East Coast, and all throughout Central Canada. This is not a local phenomenon. This is widespread. And uh, it's just, it, it beggars belief uh, as to how this could have happened. All right. Well, Dr. Drummond, we'll have to leave it there for today. But I do appreciate you joining us and talking and and raising awareness about this and the concerns. And we'll talk about it again, I'm sure. But thanks so much for coming on the show today. My great pleasure. Well, earlier today, Vancouver Coastal Health released some information that takes a look at the rate of COVID-19 transmission in schools right across the region. So this is the region of Vancouver Coastal Health, and it targeted the first half of the school year, saying that since schools reopened in September, VCH has not recorded a significant increase in COVID-19 cases among school-aged children relative to other groups, saying that those aged 5 to 17 accounted for 6% of of the COVID-19 cases in the region since the beginning of the pandemic, despite representing 10% of the VCH population. Uh, it also goes on to say that from September 10th to December 18th, approximately 700 students or staff in the Vancouver coastal region of a total population of more than 100,000 have been diagnosed with COVID-19 since schools reopened. Uh, it says more than 90% of these cases have not resulted in any school-based transmission. The vast majority of affected students and staff contracted the virus at home or in social circumstances outside of school and links to schools were determined through contact tracing. So this would go to the argument that schools are safe and keeping schools open is important and that the transmission is low. But it's certainly been something that has been concerning for people who are in the school system. So joining me to talk a little bit more about safety in schools is Julia McRae, first vice president of the Surrey Teachers Association. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. It's a great privilege. Well, we wanted to talk to you because even though this is VCH, so it's a different health authority, and I know there are different numbers when it comes to Fraser Health and when it comes to what we're seeing in the Surrey School District, but does this give you some uh, reassurance or is it uh, is it good to know at least that in these school settings, which are similar settings, that we're not seeing a really high rate of transmission? 
yeah, thanks very much for differentiating between Vancouver Coastal Health and Fraser Health because um, I'm, well, I'm more familiar with Fraser Health because that's where we work. Um, and it is a bit different there. Like we have a slightly different um, school setup as well uh, where there's lower numbers of kids in the secondary classes in Vancouver, whereas in Surrey there's the normal number of kids in class face-to-face. So that's quite a difference, which might mean part of the different results. Um, you were saying that uh, in the report they're saying um, only 6% of cases are found in kids despite having 10% of the population, but that is data from the beginning of the pandemic, and bear in mind that most kids were sheltered at home from mid-March till mid-September, and so if, the, if you look at the data a different way, from, then it would be actually about, it's about 10.5% of the, of the kids have been tested positive, and that's the same as their percentage of the BC population. So the wording of the way this is delivered is kind of interesting to us, shall we say. Okay, and looking, so looking at that specific time frame and what, what time they chose to take the, the information from. Yeah, and like they say, they, they're looking for the beginning of the school year, but then they say from the beginning of the pandemic. Those are two different times. Right, and and the number as well of the 700 students or staff in Vancouver Coastal, that's the number again from September 10th to December 18th. Yeah, and of course I don't know much about Vancouver Coastal Health in terms of those numbers. I mean, I will say we've had a lot of um, exposure notices issued to us in Surrey. There's like 87% of the schools have had at least one exposure. Hmm. So, uh, you know, that's a lot. <laughs> that is a lot. And I guess the big question there, though, is the exposures. How many of those exposures have actually led to transmission? Well, it's impossible for us to know, really, right. because they're not testing all the kids in the school, right? So um, we've had, like, some some schools have had a lot of exposures, like more than 30. And so um, that's difficult. I mean, in the case of the Cambridge outbreak, Cambridge Elementary, the school was closed when it had seven known cases, but actually they tested a lot of the, the students and staff subsequently in a, in a mass testing project, and um, 25 further cases were found, and they were all found in children, and I guess they were mostly asymptomatic, which seems like a low number. It's a large school, but that's 25 undetected, previously undetected cases. Those were kids going to school, presumably, and playing with other kids and moving around. So it's it's a bit alarming to know that when they did do a mass testing, there were there were a lot more cases found. And that also really opens up the conversation again about asymptomatic uh, transmission, because it's one thing to say, stay home if you have symptoms, if you're feeling ill at all. But when we have kids that are asymptomatic and they're uh, testing positive, that's a whole other issue. Exactly. I mean, we, we've asked t- parents to not send kids to school if, even if they have mild symptoms. But if they have no symptoms at all, it's not the fault of the parent to not notice. <laughs> and we don't know. There's not mass testing, so we don't know um, what the real numbers are. In some other jurisdictions, I heard in France, they are doing mass testing of millions of school-aged children to find out. Is that something, I know there's been conversations about rapid testing and doing a higher uh, the number of testing. Is that something you would like to see in the Surrey School District? Well, I mean, I'm certainly not a health professional. I, I think that we don't have all the information that we need to really defeat this pandemic, and we certainly want to. <laughs> I better not answer that other than that. <laughs> all right. Uh, what about, so how are things going right now? Um, and we've certainly talked about the transparency in Surrey. Uh, the superintendent puts out videos and talks about this uh, quite often. How are things going right now? Well, we're, yeah, we're pleased with the transparency in Surrey, and, you know, thanks to Jordan Tinney for that great work. Um, I guess... We, we, I hear in this, in this 
press release from Vancouver Host Cult of Health, they're saying schools are an essential determinative of mental, physical, and emotional development. That's great. But now I would say we don't have a mask mandate in our schools. Like, kids do not have to wear a mask. And some kids want to wear a mask because they want to, to keep safe for themselves and their families, and they don't have any control over someone else in their class who refuses to or doesn't have to. And so there's an emotional and mental toll that they're forced to be in quite small classrooms with people who aren't wearing masks. So, like, it's kind of turned around the other way. You know, yes, of course, every teacher is going to agree with you that the schools are important for all kinds of good reasons for kids. But then the kid doesn't have the power in the class to get someone else to wear a mask, and that's upsetting to them. And then we can't enforce it because we don't have a mask mandate. So, I mean, my main message, I guess, through this opportunity that you're giving me today is Surrey teachers want everyone to come to class with masks and to wear them so that we can all be safer and defeat the pandemic. Uh, at this point, uh, even anecdotally, what percentage uh, of students would you say are wearing masks that aren't required to? Actually, a lot of them are. That's why and I'm also encouraged to bring forward the idea that it should be a mandate. I've been asking systematically whenever I talk to teachers, what percentage in your school are wearing masks? And some of them 100%, some of them 90 95 Sometimes they're 100% in the halls or in most classes, but then maybe not in PE or not in not at sometimes in smaller groups. You know, so it's um, but the percentages are high, and I think that that speaks so well for our students and our families who are really caring and trying their best to reduce the transmission in the whole community. And and your thoughts on, on the vaccination as far as teachers, is there some optimism there as far as now that we're starting to see vaccine rollout in the province uh, that and some hope uh, of teachers being in that first, or I guess, stage two would be uh, in getting vaccinated? Yeah, of course. People really want this to be defeated and they want to not be afraid to go to work. So, um, yeah, we want to be in the second group for sure. I mean, we don't want to go in front of long-term care residents or workers or health workers who directly know they deal with COVID patients all the time. Absolutely. Those people need to go first. But in all the other essential services, police, fire, teachers, and many, many other groups, the second group is important as well. All right. We'll leave it there for today. Julia, thanks so much for making the time for us. I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. It's always interesting. And and let's all do our bit to put on our masks and defeat this pandemic. Thanks so much. Well, if you were asked to name a famous artist, chances are you would likely think of Vincent van Gogh as one of the top answers, especially after hearing that song. You might not have even known that song was a thing. Even if you are familiar with some of most or some of van Gogh's most iconic paintings, you might not have known that he created more than 2,000 artworks during his lifetime, and that includes 100, sorry, 860 oil paintings. Our show contributor, John Jang, joins us now to explain why it is we are talking about Vincent van Gogh. Hey, good afternoon, Jill. You know, we don't get to talk about upcoming events very often these days because, well, COVID-19's thrown a wrench into pretty much everything. However, today, all of that changes because we finally get something to look forward to in the spring. So, starting tomorrow... Tickets will go on sale for the Imagine Van Gogh exhibit, which will open at the convention center on March 19th. Now, to explain how this exhibit will be quite special is one of the designers who put this entire thing together. She is Annabelle Moget, joining us all the way from France. And bonjour, Annabelle. Thank you so much for giving us a few minutes of your day. Hello, I'm very happy to be with you today, even from France, because I'm not in Vancouver right now, but I hope we'll be there soon. 
Uh, fingers crossed, uh, we would love to have you as the designer of this exhibit. Now, I have seen some of the photos and the videos of what this exhibit is like, and i got to say it's beautiful. It is stunning from just what I have seen. I've actually talked to some friends who heard about this, and they're also very excited that it's coming to Vancouver. So I have to know, what inspired you to want to create this brand new way of showing off one of history's uh, greatest artists, that being Vincent van Gogh? Okay, the, the inspiration came, uh, I would say, a long time ago, you know, because if you will discover this exhibition, you have to know that I do this job for more than 20 years now because I'm Alberti Grand Total in Law, and this man invented in 1977 the original concept of immersive exhibition, what we call in France image to time. And in 2007, uh, I created this uh, Van Gogh for Cathedral d'Image in Provence, in south of France, to show to the people who were living there how Vincent van Gogh could paint this Provence. Because this show just starts when Vincent van Gogh arrived in Provence, in Arles, and the end of the show is when he died in the suburbs of Paris, in Auvergne-Turois. And that was very important for me, to show the light, to show the colors, to show how he was painting this Provence with a bit of Japanism, because at this period in France, Japanism was very, very important. What I really admire about the Imagine Van Gogh exhibit is that it's so much more than just walking through a gallery, because you're using technology and things like multi-projection screens. You would feel like you're walking inside one of these Van Gogh creations, and then there's the use of audio. And I think it's really important to make this more than just a visual experience. It's auditory as well. And I imagine it would help create this very strong connection uh, to what it is you're witnessing in front of you. Yes, we use a um, composer like Eric Satie, for example, who was uh, living at the same time as Van Gogh. But we also, uh, you will hear also Bach, you will hear Saint-Saëns, you will hear Mozart and Schubert, which are composers which were not living with Van Gogh, but who can still help you to understand the feelings you need to understand why seeing all these pictures, all these paintings of Van Gogh. Now, obviously, there's still people wondering if it's a good idea or if it's safe to check out this event with COVID-19 still affecting the way we live. One thing you made sure of, however, as the designer, is that this exhibit caters to everybody and that COVID-19 protocols will be in place. Yes, we are. We've kind of COVID-19 friendly, you know, because there is not that many people who can go into the room. The, the, the opening time are very large. Then you can go from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. sometimes on Friday and Saturday to midnight. So I think it's a really COVID-friendly exhibition where you can go. And it was very important for me because you don't have to forget that this exhibition is for everybody without any text to read. The exhibition is really suitable to both art lovers and family with kids. And this point was so important for me and for Julian, you know, who co-directed this exhibition with me. Because to see children jumping into the sunflowers or wandering in the streets of the Yellow House was the change we really wanted to win. And honestly, the fact that there is a real event to look forward to, it just might be refreshing for a lot of people. Now, before we let you go, I have to ask... What is your all-time favorite Vincent van Gogh painting? You designed this exhibit, so I'm sure there is just that one which is very special to you. <laughs> it will be probably the Starry Night 
the Starry Night in Saint in Provence because I was living there and I've seen it. And if you look, you, you will see uh, during the, the, the exhibition uh, when we are presenting the, the Starry Night, in fact, you've got two things. You've got the two paintings because there is one Starry Night in all, one Starry Night in Siamese. And then when the sky is kind of falling down, you'll see um, a picture. A picture I took in time in Provence more than uh, seven, more ten, more than ten years ago, and I really tried to took this picture as Mankar could have taken it. So you will see uh, all the stars as he painted it, and it was so important for me to to take this picture. I stayed during the entire night in the garden in Serigny Provence to take this picture, and it's probably for me the most important moment of. Uh, of this exhibition. You will see and will tell me. I have a print hanging up on my wall. It's the Starry Night Over the Rhone. It's the centerpiece to my entire apartment, so I can totally understand why you would love the other version, of course, the more iconic version, Starry Night. Uh, she is Annabelle Moget, designer of Imagine Van Gogh. Tickets go on sale tomorrow morning. It will arrive in Vancouver March 19th at the Convention Center. Annabelle, thank you so much for your time today, and hopefully situations improve, and you would be able to join us for opening night. We would love to have you. I hope so. Thank you very much.